Good morning. If you haven't already, please be joining me in your Bibles in the book of Galatians, chapter 5. We pick up at verse 16 this morning. Galatians 5, starting in verse 16. Here's one way to summarize. Uh, it's a very broad summary, but an, I think a useful one. Uh, to summarize what we have heard from Paul so far in this study. Uh, his, his point of emphasis especially has been this. The one who belongs to Christ is one who has been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You could put it as simply as that. And where Paul has laid his claim, I mean, the hill that he has stood on and been willing to die on in this letter to the Galatians is the hill of that one word, alone. Alone. Christians are people, fundamentally, who are resting in the finished work of another. And therefore, consciously refusing any thought of adding their own works into that equation. They know something very important. Their justified standing before God is a glory to Jesus Christ and to him alone. He does not share his glory with another. This morning we come to something of a significant transition in the letter of Galatians. You'll notice that if you've been with us here, and understanding what he is going to be saying really requires us to have done what we have done up to this point, given due diligence to the arguments and the, the way of speaking that he has been uh, laying out here in these, in these chapters to this point. Um, the question before us right now is, what now? Uh, what next? Here I am, I stand now on this path, uh, put there by the mercy of God, by the shed blood of Christ, and I've got the rest of my life ahead of me, if you will, as a path. How do I walk it? And what is that path going to be like? What should I expect that path to, to be like? In verses 16 to 18, the first three verses of uh, this next section, Paul gives three answers to that question, this question about the description and nature of this path. And from there, he goes into the lists that we're maybe familiar with now, the lists of the deeds or works of the flesh uh, and the list of the fruit of the Spirit. Well, as we start to examine verses 16 to 26 this morning, I have in the bulletin to 24, but really we'll see through 26 as a section. What we'll do this morning is we're going to look very carefully at verses 16 to 18, the first three verses, and those three answers, we especially have to ask questions about his command in verse 16 to walk by the Spirit. Uh, but then we'll use what he says there to say some overview remarks about the two lists before we start to look at them more closely next time. And by next time, I don't mean next week. Uh, my family will be out all week this week. Next week, we have the joy of having Bobby preach for me. Uh, and I'll be here. I plan to introduce him just because how weird is that for me to introduce Bobby up here, but that's, that excites me, so I think I might do that. Uh, but the next week, when we're back in Galatians, we'll be looking at those two lists um, much more closely. Now, let's start this morning by reading. I'd like us to read verses 16 to 23 
Uh, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Paul continues in this way. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, <coughs> as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Do notice how this fits in with what we saw last week. He told them in our passage last week that their freedom must not be used, he said, as an opportunity for the flesh, but rather as an opportunity to serve one another. So how is it that I walk forward in a way that isn't dominated by my own fleshly desires? This is where verse 16 comes in. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In a way, the format of Paul's statements here in these first three verses match really well with the format we had last week. You have three verses and three descriptions. When we walk by the Spirit, what is that path like? What's it like? And we see one truth about this path in each of these verses. We begin with verse 16. I've decided to put it this way. Maybe you'll see what I mean. Uh, what we find out about this path of our life in Christ is that it is a path without moving sidewalks. He says in verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You know what I mean by moving sidewalks? I had to look this up to make sure. I wasn't quite sure what this thing was called. I'm thinking of the thing at the airport. that you're walking, and all of a sudden there's this horizontal escalator that just walks for you, right? So it's actually called a moving sidewalk. I wasn't sure if that was the, doesn't sound like a technical name. This is a path without moving sidewalks, if you will. And the point here is simple, but it is important for us to draw attention to. We need to notice here there is a call to walk, a command. God in his mercy has rescued us, filled us with his spirit, and he now places us upon a path of obedience, which is called life in accord with the Holy Spirit. And we must walk it. What we're describing is, a, you could think of it this way, a kind of cooperation with the work that God is doing in us, although we do have to be careful 
even in how we think about this notion of cooperation. The sense is not that God and his power has begun this thing, he's placed us on this path, and now me and my power comes in and rounds out the picture and, uh, and we go forward. That's not the sense that we have here at all. And if that's what you hear when you hear the word cooperation, we need to tweak our thinking a little bit. Uh, Michael Horton talks about this need very helpfully. He actually creates a new word to try to help us with it. He talks about the, the notion of, instead of cooperating, the notion of sub-operating. Do you see what difference he might be getting at there? It is an operation. We're called to obey. We can disobey. We all know that far too well, don't we? It's real action that we're called to, but it's not action out from underneath the sovereign will and power uh, of our God. He says this, Wharton does, he says, I think sub-operate gets at the uniqueness of the covenantal understanding of sanctification. Sanctification is due entirely to God, and we are responsible for attending the means of grace and responding in daily faith, repentance, and obedience. Now, there are two things I would have you notice here in verse 16. First one is this. We must notice that there is a promise here. We have to see the promise and see what exactly it consists of. What we have in verse 16 is a do this and this will be the result sort of statement. As you walk by the Spirit, bank on this. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh, whatever he means by that. And we haven't gotten there yet. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh as you walk by the Spirit. This call to walk by the Spirit actually brings victory in our battles with the flesh. One thing that's striking to me is that this is the exact opposite of something that he says at the end of Colossians chapter 2. And if you'd like, I can just read this to you. Feel free to turn there if you want to have your eyes on it. But Colossians 2.20, he says this, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. Listen to this, verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You see the objection, the warning he's giving to them? There are religious rites and activities usually associated, he says in verse 20 there, with regulations, do not handle, taste, touch. In other words, there are exhortations toward godly living by means of kinds of asceticism, the denial of certain physical conditions and benefits. And Paul says, rest assured, they do indeed have an appearance of wisdom. But the problem is that they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. What Paul says here in Galatians 5, 16 then is exactly the opposite of that. There are plenty of approaches that will look like wisdom, that will look impressive, but they won't be of any value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. But if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's the first thing here, is just that we notice the confidence in Paul's voice. Notice the promise here. And the second thing about verse 16, 
might be the question that's in your mind right now, if you're hearing this. Uh, it'd be a good question to have. The question could be this, okay, good, there's the promise here, walk by the Spirit and then you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. But what does he mean by walking by the Spirit? If that's the question in your mind, then you are exactly where you ought to be. This is the right question. Uh, there's a man, I've mentioned him before in our study of Galatians, Brian Rosner. He literally wrote the book on Paul and the law in a series on biblical theology edited by D.A. Carson. He's very helpful here on this idea of walking by the Spirit. He points out some things that I think are very helpful for us in order to know what's in Paul's mind when he tells his hearers, walk by the Spirit. Here's what Rosner points out. Number one, he points out that the Jews, both uniquely and repeatedly, speak about their conduct in terms of life conduct with this figure of speech of walking. We're, I think, used to that. That's, a, that's an, an idiom that registers for us. We don't even stop and think about it. But it is an idiom to speak of walking to describe your, uh, your life conduct. You see what I mean? That's a Jewish thing. Uh, Jews walk. And I mean, you, you see uh, lines and lines of Old Testament references throughout the Old Testament. This is how the Jews have spoken about their life conduct. They speak in terms of walking and specifically walking according to the law or walking by the law. This over and over again is the way they speak about how they are to guide their life conduct. Even, in, uh, even after the Old Testament, in the uh, Second Temple period, the intertestamental period, you have their literature full of that expression. Jews are people who walk in or walk by the law. Right? It's one thing he makes very clear. Another thing he makes clear is that talking about life conduct in that way as walking according to something, it's not just that the Jews did it all the time, that they spoke like that. They are the only ones who spoke like that. That's a distinctly Jewish idiom. You don't have a concurrent way of speaking in uh, Greek thought, in uh, pagan philosophy. No one else talks like that but them. So Paul here, being a Jew, is quite naturally talking like a Jew talks, with one really important exception. The exception is this. We see him make this very abrupt change in verbiage because he doesn't tell them to walk by the law here. And given how common and even emblematic it was for him to use that idiom of walking by something, he uses it 32 times in his writings in the New Testament, it's incredible. He never once writes to believers and exhorts them to walk by the law or to walk according to the law, not once. It's striking and it's intentional. Instead of that, he exhorts God's people to walk by or to walk according to a different set of guiding norms or principles. Not the Mosaic law, but something else. He says here, walk by the Spirit. He says the same thing in Romans 8, 4. But he puts it in other ways as well. In Philippians 3.17, he says, walk according to the example of the apostles. 2 Thessalonians 3.6, walk in accord with the teaching of the apostles. Colossians 2.6, walk in Christ Jesus. Romans 14, Ephesians 5, 
walk according to love or walk in love. He uses both of those. In other words, the pattern that we see in Paul is that of announcing that the set of norms we seek to live by is not the law of Moses, but rather is something that he's going to call four verses later in our big section. He's going to call the law of Christ. What that law of Christ is, is a question for a later week. But what he puts it, the way he puts it here in verse 16 is he says, walk by the Spirit. So this is spoken then as a clear contrast to the Jewish concept of walking by the law. And if you've been here with us in the study of Galatians, that does not surprise you. He has been doing something here that forces uh, the reckoning as to what, redemptive historically speaking, what happened when Christ came and gave his life. Things changed for the people of God. This is a living my life's conduct walk by the Spirit uh, in a way that is submitted to the Spirit's work in me. Now, how is the Spirit at work in his people? Is that a little question or is that a big question? How is the Spirit at work in God's people? Uh, That is a weekend seminar kind of question. Yeah? So let's answer that question in a minute or two. How's that for doing justice to an important question like that? Uh, We we won't but scratch the surface. But let's, let's just think for a moment. And much of this we've seen in the book of Galatians, actually. Did you know Galatians has been called one of the densest spirit-oriented New Testament writings? In terms of the length of the book and the amount of times that the spirit is emphasized and spoken to, one of the densest books in the New Testament as far as the Holy Spirit. How is the spirit at work in his people? Well, we saw in Galatians 4, 6, he is intimately related to the work of adoption. He is the spirit given to God's people by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit draws the minds and attention of his people to the work and teachings of Jesus Christ. It was Christ who said in John 14 of the Holy Spirit, he will bring to your mind all that I have said to you. Saying that specifically even to the apostles who will then write down uh, the inspired text of Scripture. The Spirit is the breath of God that carries forth the Word of God. There is an intimate connection between the work of the Holy Spirit and the written Word of God and the incarnate Word of God. His ministry points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit equips for body life within a local congregation. We're talking about spiritual gifts. right? Spiritual gifts are not... uh, non-bodily giftings that we have, and so they're spiritual in that way. They are gifts given to God's people specifically by the Holy Spirit, which we should see relating to what we saw last week in verse 13. But through love, serve one another. This is why the type of life that the Spirit produces can be so well summarized by the word love. Galatians 5.13, but through love, serve one another. Verse 14, the whole law fulfilled in this word, love your neighbor as yourself. Think about this with me. This kind of love can't be forced upon a person by imposing a set of rules on their life, can it? I read one person make the point this week that love in that way is a different kind of law 
He said, no external force or sanction can compel the loving of a neighbor as oneself. Such love must be generated from within, and it is so by the Spirit. As we walk by the Spirit, submitted to his leading, responding to his conviction and his calls to repentance, following his attention as he directs us to the word of God, the whole counsel of God, using his gifts in the service of others. As we live in those ways, Paul says, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That verb gratify is the verb teleo. Can you hear in that word the word telos coming out of teleo? Familiar with the word telos? It's one of those words that is a word of another language, and we've just taken it right into English, and we use it in our sentences. What is, the, what is something's telos? It's the end of something, but not like the end like it's over. It's the end of something like its end goal. When something has been brought to its intended completion, it has reached its telos. That's how we use that word, and we're using it well. Now, Paul is saying here, as you walk by the Spirit... The desire of the flesh will never reach its telos, its desired end. It will be thwarted. My friends, what is it that the flesh desires? What does your flesh right now desire in you? It's good to say it that way because we're not talking about some kind of philosophical abstract when we talk about this, right? What does your flesh desire for you right now? The worldly principle still at work within you. I tell you what it desires. It desires your everlasting destruction. It's what it desires. Romans 8.12, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not according to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Ephesians 2, 3 speaks of us all prior to regeneration, and it says of us that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, where we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. You notice that? Living in the desires of my flesh isn't just about my body, it's about my mind, too. When I lived in the passions of the flesh, I carried out the desires of my fleshly body and mind. And were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The Bible is clear about this. This is one of the things that I have... It's been a while since I've read John Owen, The Mortification of Sin... This thing has stuck with me from his book more than, I think, anything else. I've probably quoted it more than you'd care to hear, but I'm going to do it again. He said this, Sin Sin always aims at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, might it have its own course it would go out to the utmost sin of that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every uh, every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief 
would-be atheism might it grow to its head. How has God seen to it that his children, we who still live with indwelling sin all our days, how has God seen to it that we will not be destroyed by it? It's what it wants. The answer is he has given us his spirit. And we can, we do at times, resist his spirit and grieve his spirit. But with our new hearts of flesh, and given the fact, as we'll see in future verses, that in the death of Christ, our flesh has been crucified. Given our new hearts of flesh that are ours as new covenant members, now, Jeremiah 31, God uses means to keep us walking by the Spirit and being led by the Spirit. And God's promise to us is this. As we walk by the Spirit, the desires of the flesh will not find their desired end. It's a promise here to us. So verse 16, the path forward for those saved by grace is a path in a real way without moving sidewalks. We are called to walk, to cooperate or sub-operate, if we like that better, as we walk by the Spirit, and as we do so, our sinful flesh is hindered. Now, this leads us, though, right into verse 17, which is not really a separate idea or point. It's more of a further description of what he's already talking about. Here's what verse 17 makes clear about this path, that it is a war-torn path. Look again at verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, <clears throat> to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now just stop and think about it. And Paul is describing something that is going on inside of you every day of your life. Now, there's just one qualification to that, isn't there? He's not describing something that was going on inside of you before you came to know the Lord, or rather to be known by him. This is a war that is known only to believers. And that can be very clear to us, because before the Lord saves us, what did we read in Ephesians 2, 3? We were spiritually dead. There was no battle between a spirit-enlivened uh, element of myself and the remaining flesh warring against each other, there's, there's only deadness spiritually. Meaning that the flesh had free reign to have its desires indulged. The statement of verse 17 is a description of the war raging within believers. I wonder, is, does that describe the way we typically think about ourselves as Christians? It certainly doesn't describe how the world around us views us. Doesn't the world around us at least uh, think that Christians see themselves as morally perfect, as not struggling in the ways that the riffraff struggle? It's not the picture that we have here in verse 17. Not even a little bit. But that means if you're a believer here this morning, listen, verse 17 should really interest you a great deal. You are the host. News for you. You are the host of a great civil war. Your life is maybe a lot more interesting than you have tended to think. 
at times. There is an eternally significant battle happening in your life as you clock in at work, as you change that next diaper, as you go to yet another doctor's appointment. It's a battle that endures all the days of our life. It does not have a shelf life. We don't reach the age of 70 and the battle is over and then we coast. And I call it a civil war because it's all you. We're not talking when we say the flesh, we're not talking about something inside of you fighting against you. We're talking about you. There's a part of you that still wants the throne of your life and still prioritizes self-centered and ungodly desires. And now there's a part of you that is responsive to the Spirit of God and is born of the Spirit and loves for Jesus Christ to be enthroned in your life. Verse 17 tells us that these dual desires are diametrically opposed to each other. They hate each other. And they work to thwart each other. He says specifically, these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. I take this to be a statement describing the purpose of each of these two forces. He's talking about them both there, not one or the other. I read one man put it well this way. He said the purpose is that of both flesh and spirit in the sense that the flesh opposes the spirit that men may not do what they will in accordance with the mind of the spirit and the spirit opposes the flesh that they may not do what they will after the flesh. Does the man choose evil? The spirit opposes him. Does he choose good? The flesh hinders him. But I appreciate something about what he says because noticing this guy, noticing the optimism in verses 16 and 18, there is optimism here, he continues this way. He says, but the believer is not the helpless battleground of two opposing forces. If he yields to the flesh, he is enslaved by it. But if he obeys the prompting of the Spirit, he is liberated and can make a positive and willing response to the command, walk by the Spirit. End quote. So here's what we have here. We have a description of what you can expect as you walk the path of your life in Christ. There is an inherent and uh, enduring optimism, hope. We've seen that in weeks past. This is a hope-filled uh, vision forward because it is a path led by the Spirit. Yet you are to expect the constant presence of battle. That's what we see here in this verse. As you live and act in submission to the Spirit's sanctifying presence, always nearby will be the flesh seeking to hinder you. And you know what that makes me think? It makes me wonder we who often put so much priority on the big, on the visible to others, uh, in the things we do or participate in that make a big splash in the world, it just makes me wonder if we'll come to the end of our path and stand before the Lord and find that we had vastly undervalued the small but daily decisions to walk in a way that yields to the work of the Spirit as he directs us crossward 
and directs us toward love of others and away from a self-centered existence. The Holy Spirit is most certainly not absent from the earth-shattering moments of history or of your life. The big moments of your life, the Spirit was there. He brought you there. But where is it that we find Paul describing the evidence of our yielding to the Spirit's work? Peek down at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit, that which is born in us as the Spirit works in us, as we are connected to the life-giving vine that is Christ, what fruit comes? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. As we come to verse 18, I'll ask you to look with me there. We should notice a very clear parallel between what he says in verse 18 and what he just did in verses 22 and 23 when we just looked down here. Verse 18, he says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You see how that compares to verses 22 and 23. He said, But the fruit of the Spirit is, dot, 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 against such things there is no law. I take from that yet another help in understanding what it looks like to be led by the Spirit. To be led by the Spirit is to find the fruit of the Spirit born into your life. But now this has carried us into verse 18, so let's clearly state what we learn about the path here in verse 18. This path that we're placed on to walk forward as Christians. We've seen it's a path without moving sidewalks, verse 16. It's a war-torn path, verse 17. We find in verse 18 that it is an otherworldly path. Again, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. This may be a place where the visitors among us this morning, there are many of you, and we are so thrilled that you are here. You may be at a bit of a disadvantage this morning because we put a lot of work in in months past understanding uh, what Paul is saying in reference to the law Uh, what it means to be under law. You need to know what he has made clear up to this point is when he speaks about being under the law, he's not talking about being uh, the reality of being under the eternal moral law of God. He says elsewhere that he's not under the law. Uh, He can't mean he's outside of God's eternal moral law. What he's talking about is the Mosaic Covenant administration and its law codes that go with it. This as a system, a covenantal system, We have to read Paul in light of what he's been saying up to this point. One of the things we've seen is that to be under law is a distinct reference to the Jewish people as they live in the old age. Jews are those who are under law in the way Paul uses this expression. I mentioned just now, Paul being a Jew, uh, but being now a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he says in 1 Corinthians 9.20 that he's not under the law. He's told us in Galatians, these these Galatians are being tempted by the idea of becoming under the law. Galatians 4.21, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? So they're not under the law, they're Gentiles. They're being tempted to place themselves under the law. But being under law is to not yet belong to the age to come. It was an old age reality 
Christ has brought us into the new age. He has rescued us from the present evil age. Galatians 1.4. Paul says this here. You are led by the Spirit. You walk according to the Spirit. The Spirit is your guide. Not the Mosaic covenantal guidelines consisting of those codified ordinances. Again, we've beat this drum many times. We're not at all saying that there's something of a antinomian or lawless life for the Christian now, by no means. The commandments of God that he's given us in his word are always wisdom and continue to be. And as scripture, they're authoritative to us. We're talking about a covenantal relationship to God. We've seen these things several times in this series. Let me remind you again of a couple of places where Paul speaks to this elsewhere, just because to me it's very helpful to hear him express an idea in a variety of ways and to different contexts to help me understand what he's trying to say. I'll give you two of these. Ephesians 2, verses 14 and 15 says this, For he himself, that's Christ Jesus, he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. You can even see how many words Paul's using to get across what he means and what he doesn't mean. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. The other place I would direct you to, I'd like you to turn here, and look at a couple of these statements. Romans chapter 6. Find verse 14. Romans 6, 14. This is a verse with just one comment. It's profound. And in light of its context, it's especially helpful. Romans 6, 14, he said this, For sin will have no dominion over you, since... Ah, all right. So what is the condition that results in sin having no dominion over me? All right. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Now don't miss the connection that he just made there. If you are under grace and not under law, sin will have no dominion over you. What does that mean for you if you are under law? It means you are living in an administration, in a relationship to God that is dominated by sin. He has time and time again tied together this notion of, of, of domination by sin and domination by the law. One thing that this verse does, Romans 6.14, is to serve as a sort of a bridge between Romans 6 and Romans 7. Because Romans 6 is talking about the reality of our being dead to sin, Romans 6.11. And Romans 7 makes the same point, but speaks of it as being dead to the law, Romans 7.4. We've seen a few times now in this study, we've gone back there to notice that he speaks of our relationship, the Jews' relationship to the law, as that of a marriage. They were bound by marriage to the law. How can you be set free? A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But when he dies, she is free to marry another. In just that way, we have been made to die to the law through Christ so that we might be married to another. This is the point that he is making of this rescue and the fact that it required the death of our federal head. So as long as I am in bondage to the old age, so long as I have not died with Christ and been raised to newness of life in Christ, rescued from the present evil age, Galatians 1-4, I am still under the bondage of the old age. 
the age characterized by law and law-breaking, the age dominated by sin. It's to this salvation historical reality that Paul is pointing in our passage. You can come back now if you haven't to Galatians 5.18. This is the reality he's pointing us to when he says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And I will sum this up. I mean, this is, guys, if your head's hurting, we're dealing with what many see as one of the hardest realities in Paul to understand, okay? You, you, you get, what do you get? What's the, I mean, there's a graduation uh, document. There's something big you deserve here. Maybe we should do an extra potluck to celebrate what we have worked through here, all right? But let me sum it up here by giving you the words of someone who repeatedly says things more clearly than I can. Um, Douglas Moot speaks about this in his commentary on the book of Romans. He says it very helpfully. Um, and by the way, again, this is the one that will be with us in November for our off conference. First weekend of November, set your calendar. That's not one to be missed. Okay, so I've said that again. Here's what he says here. Under law, then, is another way of characterizing the old realm. This explains why Paul can make release from the law a reason for the Christian's freedom from the power of sin. He has repeatedly stated the Mosaic law has had a definite sin-producing and sin-intensifying function. It has brought knowledge of sin, Romans 3.2, wrath, Romans 4.15, transgression, Romans 5.13 and 14, an increase in the severity of sin, Romans 5.20, this law, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, 56, is the power of sin. You may remember he says there, the power of sin is the law. This means, however, that there can be no final liberation from the power of sin without a corresponding liberation from the power and lordship of the law. To be under law is to be subject to the constraining and sin-strengthening regime of the old age. To be under grace, remember Paul said you were not under law, but under grace. To be under grace is to be subject to the new age in which freedom from the power of sin is available. End quote. So in the couple of minutes we have remaining here, let's just put these things together in our minds in a couple of ways. Paul has described this path that believers have been placed on as we live our lives walking according to or walking by the Spirit, verse 16, being led by the Spirit, verse 18. This is the life of a true child of God, a true child of our Father who is in heaven. We've seen a great deal about true sonship in Galatians, what it means to be sons and daughters of the Father. When I am a child, underage, immature, I live in my father's house, and I'm my father's son. My life is structured by the rules of the house, isn't it? To the extent, even, that my sonship, in a very real sense, my sonship of my father is experienced and expressed visibly most in my living within those house rules. You see the fact that I am my father's son in the way that his, his conduct of his home dictates all parts of my life. I obey the rules that my father has set over me. 
And as I do that, I am seen as a child to be the son of my father. When I grow up and come into my own, the reality of my sonship to my father is shown in a very different way than that. I am seen to be the son of my father as an adult, as I have now come to sort of look like him, to act like him. And there are similar mannerisms even, right? A similar way of thinking. As I just live now, there's a reflection of my father that makes people who know my father, you know, they'll hear, maybe hear me say something or do something and they'll go, oh, I saw your dad in that, in that smile or in that thing you said. That's, that's your dad right there coming out. This is how my sonship is expressed. I have now come to look like him in some of these ways. This is the point that Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount. When he says in Matthew 5, 44, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This is how he treats his enemies. And as you love your enemies, what do you know? You're, you're, you look a little bit like your father, right? So that you may be seen to be sons of your father. Who does that in us? Who is responsible for that change in us? The Holy Spirit does that. He is the spirit of adoption the one who applies the redemption purchased by Christ, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And as he works, we are conformed to the image of our head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what do you know? I mean, in a way that a codified law could never create in us, but now begins to actually be inside of us, to actually be who we are, love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Being raised to newness of life in Christ means a profound liberation. Liberation from the bondage of sin. It is very true, I think, to say it this way. Liberation at last to be true humans who image our Father as we were created to do. It's life that could only come after what we'll see in verse 24, after the flesh with its passions and desires has been crucified. I would close with this this morning. Let the reminder, brothers and sisters here, let the reminder of that reality be the great aid in moments of temptation that it ought to be. The present world, along with its desires that come with it, is passing away, God's word tells us. It's passing away. I've got no time for delving into the mud and muck of the present age. And it's got no hold on me any longer as it did before I came to know the Lord. Because his priceless blood has set me free. I think we're just about to sing that. His priceless blood has set me free. We are now free to cling to the cross and to live like sons and daughters of the King 
the sons and daughters that you are by virtue of adoption. It cost a precious cost to carry out the adoption that has now changed your last name forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you have, you have shown us something marvelous this morning. You show us otherworldly things every day that we come humbly to your word to feast. Thank you for what you have done for us as we have gathered to worship you. Thank you for the truth of the things you have told us about our lives as we live guided by the Spirit whom you have given us as a down payment on our inheritance who cannot be lost to us, who cannot lose us. Thank you for the good things that you have told us that are such a source of our confidence, our peace in every situation, our pains. Lord, help us to cling more tightly to your cross in gratitude, in humility. Lord, grow our knowledge and understanding of your word in us so that we might be equipped with the tools you have provided us to fight the battles of the flesh and to fight passionately and with great confidence, with the great ability to stand again every time we fall because of the forgiveness that is ours, because the victory has already been won. Lord, cause us to be a people who stand after we fall, who help our brothers and sisters up after they fall, who determinedly walk forward in pursuit of Christ-likeness. We love you. We thank you. We pray in the name of your Son, our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in the Holy Spirit. All this we pray, Father. Amen.